Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to the Ruler podcast. My name's Jack Thurston, and this is the podcast for issue 50 of Ruler magazine, which is something of a landmark issue, marking half a century of the magazine in terms of issues, if not years. And towards the end of the podcast, there'll be a competition to win quite a nice prize that relates to uh, the 50th edition of Ruler. But first, I'd like to introduce my guest, who joins me down a Skype line to discuss this issue of the magazine. His name is Edward Pickering. He's a cycling journalist, an author, and making his debut on the Ruler podcast. Ed, I think it's it's probably quite lucky that, that you're down a Skype line because I've got a stinking cold, um, which is actually, it struck me that it's, it's one of those things that makes your life, well, make your life, particularly as a, as a journalist who goes out and talks to a lot of professional cyclists. And you have done um, an inter- feature interview with Mark Cavendish um, in, in this magazine, which we'll come to in a bit. But having a stinking cold is is a no-no, isn't it? It's taboo. It, it is, yeah. Um, I've never actually been in that situation, which I've heard from other journalists, where after shaking hands with them, um, it's actually a director sportive put some antiseptic gel on his hands after having shaken hands. I don't know if he was making some kind of statement or whether it really was a um, a health-related thing. But yeah, riders and the cycling bubble as a whole is paranoid about germs because, like any enclosed society diseases pass quickly between individuals and you know they're all on the very edge of their immune systems um, as finely tuned athletes no different from us as journalists i'd say although we're not we're, we're not the finely tuned athletes that they are but the the like the lifestyle can be tiring <laughs> okay well let's start the um start the podcast with our selection of um favorite favorite photographs um, or a, a favorite photograph or photo spread from the issue you can go first yeah i have a favorite photograph it's on page 83 yeah it's um alex steeder playing the harmonica along with um i assume a, a local french chap of some description probably at the tour de france start village it doesn't actually say um but i love the kind of impromptu off diary nature of this photograph you know this is an elite athlete at presumably at, at the Tour de France, um, the pinnacle of um, cycling, world cycling. And there's an impromptu jam between him playing the harmonica and a guy playing the violin. I just think it's the kind of thing you don't see anymore on the Tour de France. And um, it's also the kind of thing that I love about cycling. It's, it's what makes cycling a little bit different in my eyes to, to other sports, the kind of atmosphere and ambiance you, you maybe don't get so much these days at the start, but in the tour. It, used to be, it, it kind of demonstrates what a, what a cultural event it is as well as a sporting spectacle. Good choice. Well, my choice is um, on page 35, and um, this is actually from your story. This is a picture by Robert Wyatt, 
and um, it's the actually the opening spread of your um, profile um, interview with Mark Cavendish, and it shows uh, Mark on his bike in the street, um, I guess somewhere in in Tuscany. Uh, Pistoia, and um, and there's a there's a woman who's actually in focus behind Mark, sort of in 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 a, in a blur, and um, and she's she's just got on her bike, having been shopping by the looks of things. It's a, it's a sort of typical shopper bike. Although I do notice that it carries the Vina brand, which is um which is a brand of some prestige in cycling, and and I'll I, spot I it. and I quite like I quite like the. The, the various juxtapositions of, of the professional cyclist, the middle-aged lady doing her shopping, and just how it brings cycling together in a, in a, in a single photograph. Um, and I guess, you know, you could take it further and, and, and talk about how, um, I suppose, originally, originally bike racing came out of a desire of bicycle-making comp- companies to, to promote their bicycles. Um, and, and generally, the bikes that were being raced were not the bikes that were being sold and that they would try and sell a butcher, uh, a sturdy bike uh, bearing a brand of, a, of of the same brand that had just won the Tour de France, on the basis that the butcher's bike would somehow be carrying some of the virtues of of that race machine. Yeah, it's, it's a it's a beautiful photograph for those very reasons. I also like the fact she's not taking any notice of the the kind of sporting hero who's he's, the the photographs. I remember this one being taken. It was actually taken from inside the car. We were just waiting to go on the ride with. Cavendish and Sabatini and Cavendish was just resting up against the car um prop, kind of propped up against it while waiting for Sabatini to go and change kit Sabatini was in the wrong kit for his Cannondale's for his team so he had to go change in case he got photographed around the wrong kit get into trouble with his sponsor but yeah I I, I love the photographs it it does juxtapose the the kind of the traditional and the modern and the the kind of old and the new and the 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 kind of also, the contrast between the fact that Cavendish is kind of wearing space age cycling kit, and she's just kind of wearing her normal clothes and on an old, or maybe even new shopping bike to go and do her errands around town. I, I guess there are parts of the world where it is quite normal to see a professional or elite racing cyclist, you know, out and about doing their training because we're used to seeing them in races, but they have to do all those training miles and they have to do them somewhere. Uh, exactly, yeah. And they, they, you know, Cavendish lives in the town of Corata. Just it, he lives in the town. It's, it's not like there's a footballers' wives style, you know, community of, of of rich athletes living away from the town. Cavendish lives in the town Pistoia, which is uh, where the photograph was taken, just down the roads where Sabatini lives. Sabatini lives just a few doors along from where this photograph was was taken, and it's just a row of streets and a nor You know, Sabatini lives in the town centre. Um, the photograph. Where further on in the feature, where there's he's 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 kissing a baby, and there's there's a woman there that that's Sabatini's wife, and they 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 just bumped into them again in the town town centre as as they're heading off the training ride. That's true. That cycling has always taken place in you know in in the general infrastructure rather than in specially built stadia, and you know that that's that's the connection between cycling and the people. And so, why did Mark Cavendish choose to live in, uh, in 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 Tuscany, in Italy? I mean, he's a Manxman. He races for a Belgian team. Why Italy? I think he generally likes it there. Um, I don't blame him. It's it's beautiful and the sun shines. I mean, it, it's and it's kind of wonderfully hilly and not quite mountainous, but 
hilly enough for, for perfect cycling. The roads are nice. There's a cycling culture there. But Quadata is where the British Cycling Academy, set up by Rod Ellingworth, um, where Cavendish actually studied or raced as, a, as an under-23. That's where it was based. And he's he's accepted enough by the local people. I mean, he, he, he's, he sees it as a second home, I think. He he does also count the Isle of Man as his home. He's a very, very proud Manxman. And he also kind of lives... He has family connections in Essex these days with his with his wife and daughter and, 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 and stepson. So he, I think with, with Tuscany, it's the perfect place for him to live. And it, he also knows it very well. I, I think that makes it a, a great place for him to live and train. And so what was the um, what was the instigation for this um, this this uh, visit that you, you paid? I mean, obviously, he's had a terrible season um was he keen to talk to ruler or was it a matter of ruler you know uh badgering him for for a bit of time um so you, you could go out and, and and spend some time with him or always always a bit of both i think cavendish is actually always um he's always happy to talk he's he's very he's a very good talker and he's always a pleasure to interview um with one proviso he's a pleasure to interview because he's genuinely passionate about cycling and he he's a very good communicator of the way cycling is the only provisor is that he doesn't suffer fools gladly and you've got to be very well prepared um with your facts and questions with cavendish he he if you ask him questions that he's been asked before or he perceives you as maybe not having done your search he switches off very quickly but when he's when he's on um He's he's a fantastic communicator. Communicator, cycling. I think yes, he's had the best year. I mean, he, he he had good form through the year. He's won stages in races like the Tour Turkey, Tour California, and he was riding well. And then then obviously crashed out of the Tour de France and never got a chance to show himself against Marcel Kittel. So he's happy to talk about you know the, the fact it be honest about the fact it's been a challenging year. But he's also happy to talk about the fact that. Being away from cycling, being forced to miss the Tour de France, has rekindled his love for it, and he, you know, he he wants to go back and prove himself. Proving himself is what he really enjoys doing, and does to kind of, you know, for, for his, you know, sense of self. So he's he's happy to talk about, you know, coming back, facing the challenge of riding against, sprinting against Kittel, and proving that he's still a good sprinter. When people talk about something being rekindled it always flags in my mind the idea that it must have somehow gone out the spark must have gone uh, or the fire must have gone out maybe i use the wrong word but he was saying before this year's tour that he used he he thought he had he wasn't sure how long he'd keep it going and you know see after three four seasons how how it was going whereas he see he said now very definitely he he, he thinks this is a good halfway mark in his career and he's been a, a professional since 2007 so that that would give him another six seven years um as a, as a professional cyclist and he's very competitive so he would he would never want to be a cyclist just to make up the numbers so maybe not a case of losing something and getting it back but yeah re- rekindling the passion and realizing how much he loved it by the fact that he missed it a great deal of what went wrong this season can be put down to bad fortune and, and crashes but hanging over it all I guess is the question of of is Mark Cavendish still the fastest man on two wheels and now that uh, there's a bit more a lot more competition and and we have Marcel Kittel who's who's been winning the the head-to-heads hasn't he 
he has Cavendish has never actually beaten Kittel in a in a straight up sprint where both of them have have gone for the win. And but it, it it's interesting. I mean, Kittel is evidently the best sprinter Cavendish has has had to come up against. Um, Andre Greipel has given him some problems and beaten him in the past, but I always got the sense that if everything went right for Cavendish, he would beat Greipel. Whereas with Kittel, I think Kittel's formidable. He's he's extremely fast and worryingly for Cavendish, he seems to be able to hold that top speed for for longer. Um, but this this is a kind of rivalry that it, it demonstrates that we as we as cycling fans and sports fans have quite short memories in in general because for a while Cavendish was the best sprinter because and it was evident he was the best. And then Kittel came along, and now now we all think he's the best, and that's that's fine because that's that you know somebody has to be the best. But I think Cavendish sees that Kittel has vulnerabilities, and um, one of those is the ability to conserve energy over three weeks, and that's something Cavendish has always been very good at. You could see that this year's tour, um, Kittel won the first sprint easily, the second sprint slightly less easily, and then by the third sprint he wasn't winning by much at all. And I think Cavendish sees a chink in his armour that in a straight-up sprint at the start of a Grand Tour, Kittel might be superior, but I think Cavendish will have ambitions to um, have a good run at Kittel next, you know, in next year's Tour or the Giro d'Italia. And it might take the third or fourth attempt to beat him, but um, I think it'll happen, and I, I think Cavendish believes that it'll happen, otherwise he wouldn't, he wouldn't be going back to try and do it. What's the strategy? Is it to focus on on the end of the stage races, or is there a race plan as well with his team? I'd say Cavendish is now in the position where he doesn't have to take responsibility to um, organise a sprint at the end for a long time because he was the leader. Team other teams relied on um, when he was with HTC in Colombia to for them to bring the sprint together. They're no mega farmer, whereas now everyone's definitely going to look at giant Shimano. For you know, to 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 organise the sprints and Cavendish can play off that. He's done a lot of track racing in the past. He knows how to handle himself in a sprint, and I think he'll he'll play off Kittel a lot more and, and and sit behind him and you know use use Kittel's team to put himself into a position to sprint, and then you know maybe use his team at the very end of a sprint to to bring him past Kittel. And it's what Robbie McEwen used to do with Alessandro. Pataki and Mario Cipollini, um, their teams would lead out the sprint and he would sit on them. He'd have to fight for their wheel, which is not an easy thing to do, but he'd sit on them and then use use his jump to get past them. Um, whether Cavendish can do that with Kittel, I'm not sure, because Kittel, you know, like I said before, is extremely fast and can hold his speed for a long time. And he also employs a, um, a sweeper, which is an, a new role that I hadn't heard of in a sprint train. It's the rider who rides behind the, the designated uh, team leader in, in in the sprints to um, to block um, a freelancer from from hopping on the on the wheel. That's right, and it's a point. To, it's a sticky point with Cavendish because he obviously collided with Tom Feelers, who's uh, Kittel, often Kittel's sweeper on in the sprint. As as Feelers was coming back back after having done done his work, um, Cavendish perceives it that. That he drifted and wasn't, you know, he he wasn't looking where he was going and drifting backwards, which is very dangerous when you're in the middle of a sprint because everyone else is going forwards at seventy miles an hour, uh, seventy kilometers an hour. Sorry, so it's a controversial tactic purely because it's not somebody who's trying to win the sprint; it's somebody who's 
basically trying to keep anyone else from getting close to the sprinter. It's it's legitimate within the rules of the sport, but Cavendish certainly doesn't smile upon it as a tactic, especially he's been on the receiving end of it. And one of the points that you mention in the article is that Cavendish doesn't have um, and hasn't had since HTC a team that's built entirely around him to uh, to help him win his sprints. Um, he's been with Sky, who had um, other ambitions, and, and now with Omega Pharma, they also have other ambitions. Although they have, you know, they do provide a, a strong uh, sprint team for him. It's not all that they do. No, exactly. It's, it's actually a formidably strong team. When you look at the riders they've got, they've got Rigoberto Uran, who's capable of finishing on the podium of Grand Tours, um, has done so twice. Um, they've got the new world champion, Michal Kwiatkowski, who's obviously, you know, obviously having a fantastic season and will go on to even, even greater things. And they've got Tony Martin, who's former world time trial champion and multiple stage winner in the Tour de France, and they've got Tom Poonen in the and Nicky Terpstra, who are in, who are specialists in the in the um, the cobbled and flat classics. So Cavendish is a bit crowded, but it, the team seem does seem to work okay for him. I think they they've got a very they have got a good lead out train. They've got Gert Stegmans, who was one of Robbie McEwen's trusted lead out men um, nine nine ten years ago. He's very experienced. And they've got Mark Renshaw, who's also you know, seen as one of the two or three best lead out, final lead out men in the world. So Cavendish does have strong riders at his disposal, but he doesn't, you're right, in that he doesn't have the whole team um, of eight riders in front of him in the way that Giant Shimano did for Kittel. Um, Giant have got uh, the luxury of having eight domestiques, all for Kittel winning stage in the Tour de France. And, and that's told. Um, with their Grand Tour rider Warren Barguy getting better and better. That that might change in the future and it might change the sprinting dynamic. But at the moment, Cavendish is slightly outnumbered and it, it's showed, although he seemed very confident that he he could and would have um, given Catella a close run at the Tour de France this year had he not suffered from bad luck. And do you think that he has recalibrated his expectations because he has had the most phenomenal series of seasons with huge numbers of victories and maybe that is just an exceptional time you know maybe it's unrealistic to expect to be able to get back up to that that level of winning you know five did he ever win six stages yeah he won six yeah Yeah. his most was six and he he averaged five I think he won four in his first or six in his second and then five in his third and fourth dipped down to three um and then two last last year, and then none none this year because he crashed out. Now he he was ahead of the game, and that's one of the reasons why he, you know, he's phenomenally fast and talented as a sprinter. But he was also ahead of the game in terms of the preparation, the the tactics, and the looking into the aerodynamics. And it's it's true that other teams have looked at what he's done. Everyone's wearing skin suits now. Everyone's got aerodynamic helmets and those I was I was told by um it was actually Rob Hales, Cavendish's um personal assistant, who told me that those aerodynamic aids, especially the skin suits, benefit big riders much more than they do small riders. So again that's that's actually turned into a disadvantage for Cavendish. But I think 
if Kittel were to have bad luck, then we could be looking at Cavendish winning five or six stages again. If Kittel turns up not on form and Cavendish has another great tour, then again, the, the, the tables could be turned. I think in if all things remain equal, then it's going to be hard to repeatedly win five or six stages again for Cavendish. I think those days are, uh, are over. He's no longer ahead of enough of the game that he could guarantee that. But I think he's confident he can outsprint anybody when he's when he's feeling good and the tactics are right. And, you know, with a bit of luck, which you never want to rely on as a professional cyclist, but with a bit of luck, he 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 could you know, win, win multiple stages again. I, I, I don't see why not. And he, I still think he's, you know, he's, I've, I've got no evidence to suggest he's not, you know, the, still the second best sprinter in the world. While he has mellowed, there's, there's still life in the, in the, in the old dog yet. <laughs> well, uh, that takes us um, to, to someone who I suppose we could genuinely desc- describe as an, as an old dog. Um, Jens Vogt, who um, has uh set a new benchmark for the hour. Um, I'm careful to say that he hasn't broken the hour record and I got a little bit irritated on social media the other day during the hour attempt that people were saying yes and the commentators were saying yes, he's breaking the hour record, which of course is, 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 is not true. Ed, you are something of an expert on, on the hour, um, having written a book about um, how the contest was reignited in the 1990s in, with, with the battle between Chris Boardman and Graham O'Brien, um, and you've, you've been out to see and, uh, and, and talk with um, Jens Vogt after his successful um, setting of the new benchmark. Just, just fill us in on, on, on how the hour has been reignited as a, as a sporting contest. Well, it, it, it fizzled out um, partly because the riders were riding too far. Um, the, the, the parallel I see is with, um, I think, the, the javelin in track and field athletics. Um, people in the, I think, the 80s and 90s were, were throwing the, the javelin so far, they had to keep making it heavier so that they wouldn't impale a poor, unsuspecting member of the um, audience at the other end of the field or, or, or an unsuspecting 1,500-metre runner who's going around the, around the, around the home, home, around the bend. Um, so they keep cha- they kept changing changing the um, weight of the javelin, which made the world javelin record as it is a kind of bit of a confusing situation. And the same same things happen with our record that they Chris Boardman rode fifty six kilometres in in what's called the Superman position in the mid nineties, and it's pretty much accepted that nobody is ever going to get close to close to that, or nobody was ever going to get close to that record again. Um, especially since the UCI banned the Superman position, which was incredibly aerodynamic. So the UCI, um, to cut a long story short, uh, Union Cyclist International, the governing body, decided to divide the record into two um, different records. The ultimate hour record, which was Chris Baldwin's 56-kilometer record, and then they reset the hour record to the, the athlete hour to the 49 kilometers that Eddie Merckx rode in 1972 or three. I'll have to check check which year that that is. 1972, I think. And it kind of died a death. Chris Boardman did actually break Eddie Merckx's record in the traditional position on drop handlebars um, using using no aerodynamic aids. Um, but interest fizzled out in it. And why did the interest fizzle out? Was that because there were, the the manufacturers had no interest in producing a bike that was 
from 1972 um, that there was no money to, to, to set one of these um, the records? That's that's part of it. I mean, the the the, the hour takes a lot of support and research by the the bike companies, and it's kind of a showcase for their technological development. So if if the clock's been rewound to you know the the steel frame triangular frame frame era, then there's there's no interest for them. It's not just that though. The the record lost its luster and it became it became confusing, and I think amongst the athletes there. Whereas it used to be one of the blue ribbons and the the ultimate accolade for you know road cyclists to go and set the hour record, all all the greats, a lot of the greats of cycling, have held the record in the past. So I think after the UCI's tinkering of the rules, it it just became something that held no interest for them. And also to train on a drop handlebar bike to actually break the hour record takes quite a significant amount of time and effort, and it's time out of the season when they should be doing their their day job of representing their sponsors and bike manufacturers so it kind of fizzled out and it was only when the UCI announced this spring that riders would be able to use modern technological equipment including tri bars that interest was reignited and the the timing was perfect for Jens Vogt to really execute a, a publicity coup in announcing that he would do it as his kind of retirement swan song so the fact that Vogt is so popular also helped but the, the timing was perfect and so what now is the bike that you can ride in the in the hour uh, same same as the same as the pursuiters it's got a it, it there are certain technological constraints as there are with um pursuit bikes that um you can't have a, a monocoque one-piece frame um the wheels have to this be the same size but other, other than those it's it's much more reasonable and um you know the bikes you see pursuers riding will be similar to the ones ridden in the in the hour. In fact, I think Vogt rode an off the peg time trial bike, Trex time trial model um, for the for the hour record. They didn't have time to build a whole new bike for the hour, hour attempt, so he used a, a a time trial bike basically. And so, I guess the question is: as this is um, an event which is supposed to transcend time, in the sense that one athlete can race against another athlete from another generation and see how they how they would do has the importance of technology been removed from the equation or will there be improvements such that in 10 years time they may have to reboot it again i'm not sure i mean there may be we we don't know what the bike companies could come up with uh, to 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 kind of give give themselves a little edge i i there are, there are quite a lot of regulations in place that the UCI have put in place to kind of try and control that but that it, it, it's a game in a way between between um, the, the bike manufacturers and the and the UCI. I think there's going to be a re- reigniting of interest in it. I think name, names I've heard suggested as being very interested in the hour record are um, Alex Dowsett, who as a you know, Grand Tour time trial winning cyclist would have a good hope of beating Jens Fox's record. Fabian Kanstar has been interested in it on and off over the last couple of years. Tony Martin's interested, but I think Bradley Wiggins has gone as far as setting a date in June next year, I believe, to break the record on the back of his training for Paris Roubaix. I, th- I think if when when he attacks it, he won't be a huge distance off Borden's former record. He'll, I, I would say he'll definitely be north of fifty-four and a half kilometres, and then from from then it depends on how well he's he's focused on it. 
Voxner's the first to admit that all he's done is, is say, a, set a benchmark. Um, it's been nice timing for him, and now he doesn't expect to keep it when you know younger riders who are more specialised in time trials go for it. And I think, I personally think Wiggins is the one who who sets a very challenging mark because, much as Tony Martin's the best time trialist of his generation, Wiggins has the track experience, and being able to ride on a track is 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 not just a case of pointing a wheel in a straight line and and pedaling away it takes quite a lot of mastery of the g-force and the the way the track affects your position and and form over the course of an hour that's that's important and i think because wiggins developed as a track rider i think he'll have the edge on tony martin if they both went for it well jens Bock does feature in um this issue of ruler 50th um, issue um, on page 63 a picture of the young Jens Vogt and this is in um, quite a nice um, feature uh, in the magazine um, where the editors have got a handful quite a large handful of um, professional writers from from different eras to write a letter to their younger selves um, offering advice or observations or it's pretty free form isn't it um, but a quite quite a nice nice exercise it is. There's there's some there's some great advice and some advice which wouldn't 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 account for me. I like I like some of the shorter ones as well. I I love the the um the Bernard Isol one, which basically it says not really any point in me advising the twenty one year old Bernie because um twenty one year old Bernie knows best, and um I, I think that's quite a quite a nice acknowledgement of of his character and also the the Sean Yates one, which is. As, as brief and succinct as the man himself is generally in interviews um just says don't change anything just be a little more serious and don't eat so much cake and don't eat so much cake yeah which which kind of sums up um sean yates diet and uh, what to eat and that kind of thing which has changed an enormous amount i i guess over the over the years and uh, we get a taste for that excuse the pun in uh, Ian Cleverley's feature at the at the back of the magazine, um, where he spends six days, I, I guess, or six visits at least, during the Vuelta a España with various um, team chefs. And I guess the team chef is, is, is probably a new role in cycling. I was talking about the sprint sweeper being a new role. Um, can you recall when, when you noticed that, that teams were having their own, their own chefs as part of the team? Not exactly. That's that's a very good question. Uh, it's it's something that's kind of happened in my mind by osmosis because I'm focused generally on the on the riders and the racing. It's kind of crept up on me. I remember a few years ago seeing a photograph of I think it's Europe Car had a um, a, a little port- <laughs> kind of portable restaurant. It had a camp a, a large well an extra large camper van which the the sides opened out and they it made a restaurant for the riders to to, to eat in. Um, I remember being quite struck by that. That's three, maybe four or five years ago. And it's kind of most been visible to me at, at Team Sky because I, I used to follow their, their their chef on Twitter. He tweeted every meal that he did for the riders. And it was quite an insight into the, you know, the, the everyday life of the team, that it's not just a case of getting up, racing and sitting down at the end of the day. There's there's a whole infrastructure which supports them. And, and yes, and, and I think because... Somebody once described cyclists to me as basically industrial strength digestive systems because um, they they don't half have to pack away a lot of food over the course of a, a three-week grand tour. And 
So the chef's job is not just to replace all the nutrients and do all the boring stuff about X amount of protein and Y amount of carbohydrate. They've got to make it taste nice, otherwise the riders go mad. So I, I, I like seeing whether there's a tension between keeping the riders happy with the taste and variety of the food and giving them what they need to fulfil their, their duties. Let's just um, quickly mention the, um, the review of the covers of Rouleau, celebrating the magazine's 50th issue. Um, the, the cover of, the, of, of Rouleau is something that has, from the very beginning, set it apart from other cycling magazines. I mean, I think a lot of us would like to think that the internal contents of the magazine also <laughs> set the magazine apart from other cycling magazines. But, uh, but the cover definitely is different. What did you think when you first saw Ruler? Because you've only started writing for it relatively recently. I think in the last issue and this issue is that is that right? Or that's that's right. Yeah, the last 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 two issues I've, I've I've had features in. Yeah, because I because I um I came from a background in much more commercial magazines where there are certain kind of opinions within the company um, about about the way the magazines should look and the way magazines attract people's attention that. I do remember being quite taken aback when I, I can't remember what I saw on my first cover of the Rue there, but I think it was a cobblestone. It might have been that issue nine, which is in, in this month's magazine. And I, I, I remember thinking, being quite taken aback by that because it, it, it went against every single thing I'd ever been told that, that, that you need bright colours to attract attention, that you need a kind of list of what's in the magazine in order to entice people to open it and buy it. So a picture of some cobblestones and just the title of the magazine seemed to me to be quite a departure. I liked it as well, obviously, because um, you know, I like the idea of more in-depth, more in-depth features and long features and, and you know, the, the emphasis on photography that Rouleau has had. So it, it communicates that very well. And I, I'm afraid it does seem as though the, uh, the bean counters that Rouleau have had to take the advice from uh, that you described of having um, the, the table of contents, because if you do see Rouleau on the newsstands, you will see that it has a different cover which is a little bit I mean it's still different from most cycling magazines and perhaps not quite so garish but it definitely does has that have that sort of um table of contents type of thing very true although I will say that this this month's edition which I believe is designed by Paul Smith is that right yeah well that's the subscriber issue um so if you're if you're a subscriber you get ruler as it's meant to be whereas if you if you pick it up in a newsstand then you get the extra bit that's put there um, to make it sit more happily alongside all the other cycling magazines. So it's it's clear where I'm going with this. Yes. Um, it makes sense to subscribe as you get a better magazine and, and you pay a bit less, I think. The Paul Smith cover is beautiful. And it, it's also, dare I say, quite garish and very brightly coloured. So it's... um. And it's also a little bit naughty. It's a bit naughty, isn't it? Slightly naughty? The placement well, of that saddle? Maybe, if, 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 if you see things that way. <laughs> I'm holding it up in different ways, and I know I, I I don't know. I don't just think it's a it's a it's a beautiful color cover. Yes, right. I've I've got a filthy mind. It's true. <laughs> now I mentioned at the start of the show there'd be a chance to win something that relates to uh, this issue of Ruler, and I'll keep you in suspense no longer. The prize, and it's a good one, is a limited edition print of the cover of Ruler that we've been talking about um, by Paul Smith. Um, so uh, that's something to uh, put in your art treasure trove. And you can win it if you answer correctly the following question and are uh, the one who has the correct answer who is drawn out of the hat by, um, by the folks at Ruler. The question is this. 
What was, what is the name of Paul Smith's first cycling club? What's the name of Paul Smith's first cycling club? And send that to competition at ruler.cc. That's competition at ruler.cc. And uh, the, uh, the editor's decision will be final. Uh, good luck. We're nearly done now for this podcast. Ed, thank you very much for joining me. Scratchy though the Skype line has been, we've enjoyed your insights. Elsewhere in this issue, you can um, read the usual columns um, by Johnny Green, Matt Seaton, Robert Miller, as well as um, the latest Brief History of Cycling Photography, where Duncan Forbes looks at photographs of victory. And um, there is a feature by Colin O'Brien um, about very fancy Campagnolo wheels um, that Ed and I have decided that not being the strongest on the technology side, we'll skip over entirely for the purposes of this podcast. Probably best. All I can say about them is that they look very round. <laughs> well, that's important, isn't it? As we know. Okay, Ed, thanks very much. Thank you. And finally, as this is something of a celebratory moment in the history of Ruler, we're going to play out with a few of the best bits from the podcast. There haven't been 50 podcasts. I don't know how many podcasts there have been. I think some way over 20. Um, so uh, we trawled around to find a few tidbits that might amuse you. So until next time, thanks for listening. From me, Jack Thurston, goodbye. Have you seen a dog, Wingo? Um, in a car, and a mm. Land Rover, lots of times. Oh. No, a dog, a dog <laughs> on foot. I had him by that, not long, no, about... Was it sheep, is it a sheepdog? An old, like an old English sheepdog, grey, you know. No, I haven't, we've been here for about no. half an hour, I haven't oh, seen him. No, yeah. yeah. If you want to borrow my bike, you can go and have a scoot round and see if you can find it. <laughs> well, we'll keep an eye out for him. Should we? Should we uh, hang on to him if we if we if we see him come past? And yeah, here's your Land Rover again. Yeah, the la- Okay, no, sorry. I, th- I, haven't, haven't seen I think him. the I think the people in the Land Rover might be lost. I don't know. They keep going past with different different cargo on board. Well, I thought that- people moved to the countryside to get away from the traffic. You mentioned the curse of Ruler. Yes, always. What is the curse of Ruler? I don't know who started. Who started the curse of Ruler? Tommy Rocker. Um, I'm just thinking from a point of view of a rider. Was it Sylvain Chavanel? Could, it was Chavanel or yeah. Vaucler or around that time. But basically, as soon as we put someone in the magazine, a big win will surely follow. Um, it's it just it's a total freakery, you know. Don't, don't, we don't claim to be any great pundits. It's, it's just that's just the way it is. And, and the thing is, we have we have such a, a long time scale on things. You can you can interview a guy, and it, it might not appear till six months down the line. But uh, it's quite a handy tool, especially in the days of Twitter. Oh look, <laughs> he's still, just one. So we've still got a Julian Dean interview scheduled in, and he's retired. So yeah, well, we should do that, he's maybe due for a comeback. Yeah, but, um, due for a comeback. You know, this this time it's Marcel Kittel, good old Andy McGrath. Got hold of Marcel at the um, Tour of Turkey, and uh, sure enough, he's delivered three times so far.
touch wood. I've steered clear of uh, crashes this year. I've been, you know, racing around Central Park and Prospect Park in Brooklyn and elsewhere. Yeah, and I've mostly been okay, except uh, the first winter I was out here, I was uh, riding around Central Park kind of very early in the morning, as, as cyclists do, people training seriously anyway. And uh, uh, I had a collision with a raccoon uh, running across the road. I hit this raccoon going full bore, like 25 miles an hour plus, and, uh, you know, the raccoon bounced off, and uh, I nearly caught it, but, you know, went down, and I thought I'd done my shoulder as well, actually, but uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't too badly off. The raccoon, I found out later, was fine, by the way. I've seen it since. Its name is Fatty, and it is a very well-covered raccoon. I think it gets a very good diet in the uh, Manhattan's Upper East Side next to uh, Museum Mile. And, and we got a column out of it, of course, as well. <laughs> oh, that's so, right. You know, oh, I may have written side. about this. Oops. Yes. <laughs> These are photographs that have been published before. Johnny, you've got to run off and introduce somebody upstairs. I am. I am. This is this is pure madness, isn't it? Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the wonderful world of poetry, or is it rock and roll? I never know. One minute. Oh, we'll bring you back. Sorry, boys. So Johnny's gone upstairs to uh, compare a night of performance poetry with John Cooper Clark, amongst others, um, who he may. We're in his dressing room, actually, Ian. We found the gin. I've been eating John Cooper Clark's crisps. Well, I, I, I can see John Cooper Clark's Bakewell slices on the... That, that is an unhealthy rider over there, isn't it? That's the usual. You always get that backstage. But but in don't case... you specify what you'd like to have? If you're, if you're a star... I know you used to be in a band, but if, if you're a star of the level of John Cooper Clark, presumably you can be quite specific. The Royal Festival Hall will presumably do their best to conform to your uh, requirements. Well, well, yeah, obviously the higher up you go, the, the more you can um, specify all that stuff. But a lot of people just don't, you know, who can be bothered? Who can bother you, you? You get what you're given. Should you have a look in the fridge? Go on, listen. Oh, there we go. Now, that was definitely specified. A couple of bottles of Sancerre yeah. and some tonic water. That's not bad. Diet tonic water. That's not bad. There's a lower fridge which has some non-diet tonic water and a salad. We're talking about Henri Cartier-Bresson's uh, piece at the Belle Johnny, you're back. How, yeah, how are um, they upstairs? A good crowd? It's a, a quiet, pensive, thoughtful crowd. It's a strange way to do an interview. This well done, you boys. <laughs> It's very maverick We're and just very winging adventurous. It. We're just winging it. Upstairs, there's a huge hall full of people listening to poetry. It's brilliant. <laughs> I'm turning around. I got lost at that point. A spinal tap moment. No. For a second, <laughs> running, running back here. I love that photograph of Jacques Concatil. A bloke I used to work with who's now dead called Ray Lowry, an artist, and he always had this expression that said, great hair begat great art. Measure a man by his barnet. talk about the tour of Britain because you've both been with the tour this week Andy in a press capacity and uh, Tom on the other side of the fence how's it been it's been a wild ride yeah 
I've enjoyed it. I suppose I was I was asking a few riders this morning about cheese, so maybe I'm I'm starting to crack psychologically. But uh, the racing cheese because we're sponsoring the competitivity uh, award, so I thought it would be a nice angle to see what they've done with the cheese. Well, how does the cheese relate to the competitivity? Basically, we source local cheeses and we give them to the most attacking rider, the prize winner, at the end of every stage. Gets a hunk of cheese. Yes, yeah, uh, normally a wheel of cheese. Um, it turns out most of them haven't eaten theirs yet, but they are saving it well, post-race. Well, they're very calorie conscious these days, aren't they? Like yeah, this. well, I told one of them it would make him go faster, but uh, he, he didn't really seem to agree. Tom, you're an ex-pro. Do you think the offer of cheese for combativity would have made a marked difference to your cycling career? Uh, no, the, an extra incentive. Though. The only thing that would have been an extra incentive would have been a pig for me personally, a live piglet uh, to slaughter as I wished and when I wished. They do have um, that, don't they? Yeah, in the Trobolion in France, they give that as the Combativity Awards. Um, and I believe that Guy originally wanted to have farm animals, but there is health and safety issues, of course, with of course. Uh, livestock on the podium. We have a big piece of new technology to make riding on the pavé and having a romantic relationship with the pavé easier. They're called Mind gears. Mind gears. It is the changing of the gears. First you had the mechanical changing of the gears and then you have the electronics. And now, by the power only of the mind, you change gears. Therefore, you do not need to be placing the hands from the handlebars anywhere. You just use your power of the mind to change the gears. And Bonin already is trying it, but maybe not so successfully. It is in the early stages of development. So that could be a decisive factor for the Paris-Roubaix and for Flanders next year, I think that uh, the mind gears will be in production. I am talking to many people at the moment, but fundamentally, the difficult thing about mind gears is the rider has to have the power of telekinesis. And at the moment, there are not too many riders with telekinesis, but we keep looking. People have been asking about the sheepdog. Did I, you find I, it? Um, yeah, I just said yes because I just. You wanted a happy ending. Yeah, you know, I'm sure it's fine. Thanks for downloading this edition of the Ruler podcast. You can read Ruler magazine, which comes out eight times a year, by taking out a subscription. Go to www.ruler.cc, or you can pick up the latest edition at a growing number of bookshops and bike shops. If you've got an iPad, you can read the magazine on the iPad. Not only the current issue, but a handful of back issues as well. You'll find it in the Apple Bookstore. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 